Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska named three bands that aren't the boss tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Journey through the stories that define the artists playing Bonnaroo. Who are they? What are they? What will you see? The what? Which bands? This year? That matter? Yay. With Brad Steiner and Barry Corner. Forgot I was saying that last night. The what yeah. podcast? A podcast for Bonnaroovians by Bonnaroovians. Bonnaroovian A, Brad Steiner, Bonnaroovian B, Barry Corner. Uh, no Lord Taco today. Where in the hell is Lord Taco? Is he okay? It's It's cool outside. There's no rain. He's probably in the bus in the woods he doesn't somewhere. Go, he doesn't go outside. He sits in a bus. In the woods. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, he takes it from the garage to the trees. That's pretty much it. Uh, so uh, I'm excited about this week. Uh, and it's mainly because we get to talk about an angle of this that we've been dancing around for a while, but we never really actually engaged it with because we're not that smart. I got to be honest with you. Uh, what? If you'd have told me six weeks ago that not only would we be doing this podcast every week, but we, we would have some pretty strong guests. Yeah. I would have pretty said, good. No, we were struggling. So, uh, but I mean, Ed O'Brien, Larkin Poe, Chris Cobb last week, and and now Jeff. Uh, good. By guess. the way, not not to not to uh, jump too far um, backwards, but last week's interview with Chris Cobb. I implore you to go back and listen to because it is such a, although it is a downer and it sucks, but it's reality to swallow and it's, it gives you an idea as to where people's heads are that actually have to put these things into motion. Right. Um, so, you know, whether or not it's an artist who's, who's struggling to figure out what to do for financials and what they do the rest of the year and their, their first quarter to the venues who have to actually implement all of this to now the lawyer who then gets to sort it all out contractually. I am uh, excited about this conversation with Jeff, um, who turns out I've known for a long time and I totally forgot. Yeah, well, you make fun of me for that. So, yeah, no, I, you, you and I have speculated about topics that we talk about with Jeff and turns out we were not, not as far afield as, as, you know, one might have thought for two, you know, goobers who uh, yeah. yeah two goobers who were just talking on a podcast but to get a guy and you and jeff i was really impressed with his resume i mean he's not we'll just go through an it attorney let's hear it let's hear he's, it he's not just an attorney he is a music attorney who this is what he does yeah. so um really yeah we really were in, good get for 
for the well, show. Well, we were we were backstage at a at a at a I think it was Lollapalooza. Yeah, it was Lollapalooza. And um, I just started talking, and he's like, and I was like, so what do you do? And he's like, oh, I'm a uh, I'm the lawyer for a blank 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 and blank uh, artist that we're playing that year, and I just my mouth went agape. And I was like, I've been sitting here slobbering over a gin and tonic, making no sense to the lawyer for, huh? you've yeah. got to be kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> like so, such an idiot. He's a, he's, he's member of the Lawyers for Creative Arts, Chicago Bar, obviously, Media and Entertainment Committee, uh, American Bar Forum on Sports and Entertainment Law, Recording Academy, the Chicago chapter, um, he was named Billboard's top music lawyer on the on their list. Not top lawyer, put on their list in 2019. One of 40 Illinois. This is what he does, uh, and he 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 talks about how he got into it, which is interesting. And then towards the end, we one thing we didn't ask him, and I'm kind of glad we didn't, because he doesn't have the answer any more than we do. Is the future uh, beyond other than some of the clauses that will be in uh, contracts, which is was interesting, but. Uh, now this was um, another fascinating, yeah, look into how this world is evolving. Yeah. This world that we all love so much. So. And we hope, and we hope that through the, the the series of shows that we've done over the last few weeks, we've put all the pieces of the industry together for you to make the best. Um, I mean, a decision, but you can understand the industry as as well as you possibly can, and all that has to go into it. Jeff Becker. Uh, our guest today on the What Podcast. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for doing this. You know, you're very welcome. Yeah, you're uh, Jeff Jeff, and I go way back to the uh, <laughs> haircutting salon at Lollapalooza. That's uh, right. That I literally didn't even remember until this morning. Uh, we've, we've, we met like three years ago, and this whole time I've been like, uh, I totally, totally forgot. That's well, totally my funny, fault. Funny story. I... Um... Do you remember Chris Mangelis by chance? Did you I know do that not. Name? No. He's a chef up in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Yes, and... I do. I do know this guy. Yes, yeah. I remember that guy. He was like a rock star at that place. Yeah, dude. He he uh, he's like he has this traveling chef thing he does where he cooks for bands on the road, right. and then he's got that restaurant up there, and he obviously he knew Coop because of the uh, the restaurant world, mm-hmm. and. Lo and behold, a few months back, I started working with this wonderful artist out of Wisconsin, actually New York, named Aram Ray. And she had recently moved to Green Bay to be closer to her boyfriend, who turns out to be Chris. I'm like, small world again, back to Lollapalooza three years ago. That yeah. is nuts. I, I told Barry this before. I don't go to Lollapalooza just because I you know, think it's such a great music festival. I do it because everyone that you could ever imagine to meet, you're going to meet there. It is the epicenter of the entire industry for a damn near a week. And I guess that's probably why you got into the, the work in the line of work, especially that you got into because you just love this so much. Well, yeah, I, I absolutely 100% love music and the arts and being around artists. That's why I got into it. The Lollapalooza thing is hilarious because to me, I feel like that kid that never left my hometown and then everyone comes home for homecoming, yeah. and I go back to the high school football game, and they're all there to see me. Yeah. You know, I could see everybody at one time because being being an attorney in this industry, not in L.A. or New York, you know, I find myself oftentimes having to go out to L.A. and New York or Nashville or Atlanta or Austin, and it's nice that that one time a year, 
everybody comes here and it makes right. it very easy to kind of hang out and break bread and sure. have drinks with people. Yeah. And, and and I know that there's a there's a major topic at hand here, but there is so much that I would love to talk to you about uh, just as sure. the industry in general one day. But, you know, how did you get your start? Why did you decide entertainment law was going to be the thing that you uh, you dove well, into? It's It's funny. I think. My start really, even before becoming a lawyer, was in high school, in junior high. I, I grew up playing an amazingly very good, bad guitar, a very good, bad piano. I sang, and I was in the, the, the uh, plays and musicals. I was in bad bands. I use different words when I'm not on the radio, so to speak, but um, not being censored. I think the, are the, is the word you're looking for is dog shit? <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, I, think okay. I usually say I play an amazing... <laughs> The line is usually I played an amazing shitty guitar, right? And loved the idea of being an artist and, and going out and trying to make it as an artist. The problem was I'm extremely risk averse too. and didn't want to take the chance of actually making it as an artist. I wanted to have a job and mm -hmm. a salary and benefits to pay for the mortgage I didn't have yet, the kids I didn't have yet. And ultimately that led me to law school and mm. becoming a lawyer. And then I'd say it was probably about four years out of law school, young associate at a different law firm. And a guy comes in my office and says to me, Jeff, I was making dinner for my kids. My son was playing a video game. He paused the game and said, dad, isn't that your son in the video game? And sure enough, it was. He was a house musician in Chicago in the 80s, wrote probably the most prolific speech of all house music that had been sampled and remixed by hundreds of people. It's still used by dance artists today. And, um, that was copyright infringement. That's what I was doing in my life, just not for a specific type of person or industry. And I helped him out, got him some money, resolved the issue. But it was like a snap. Like it was like a yeah. light went off, you know, because it was music and video games. It was cool. And I'm like, wait a minute, I can actually bridge my love for the arts and music with my ability to be a lawyer and help creatives. And from that point, I set off on a path to build a practice. Really? And I yeah. Can I two things? I want to jump in here. One, yeah, sure. this is my this is my um, elevator career day speech. Basically, is I'm the same. I can't play the radio. I have three brothers that are musicians. I have no talent, but love music. So I found a way to be involved. Yeah. For me, it was it was writing at a newspaper, and that's what I tell you know kids at career day. Find something you love. You, you, not everybody's the quarterback. Not everybody's the pitcher, but. They need lawyers, they need front office guys, they yeah. need marketing, all kinds of things. But um, just to let people know, you're you're a music attorney, but as I often do, you know, Google's everywhere. So I looked up uh, Jeff Becker and uh, you're very active in the uh, yeah. law business and music, right? I mean, I looked American, I mean, uh, Recording Academy, Chicago, Billboard top music lawyers last year. Uh, just, I'm just, you wouldn't By the say way, all, of, sure. all of these things are previously bestowed upon me, my of old job. Of course. Yeah, which, sure. Which, of course. Which brings me back to what I was going to say at the very beginning when we started, Jeff. I used to say about Brad, he only likes two people, and one is himself and the other is fluid. So <laughs> if, if, he, if he doesn't remember who you are, don't be offended. <laughs> <laughs> I, I told Brad on my email this morning, it was, I'm glad that he reminded me as well, because I, I hadn't remembered that. But that's what happens in this industry. You realize that you could be one or two steps connected to almost anybody, 
right? At yeah. the end of the day, if you're out there and you're active, as you said, you know, look, I'm, an, I'm a lawyer. I, I, I explain to my clients my primary job is to make sure you don't drive yourself off a cliff, right? Um, and we do a lot of litigation as well. So when you have fallen off the cliff, helping you land as well as you can. But I don't think that's enough. As a lawyer that helps creatives, I try to find other ways to give back, to add value to their careers besides just being the person to give contracts to and ask to negotiate deals. And that's how, you know, Brad and I met, just being out there, being social. I think that not only in music, in almost any industry, people want to work with their friends. They want to work with people that they right. enjoy working with. And right. so from my perspective, and the way I built my business is very simple. Don't be a dick and don't look too hard for business. Go out there and be be genuine. Meet people, enjoy their their them as people, and eventually good things will happen. And that I think has worked out well for me in that we've been able to build this practice in the Midwest, um, which really is a national practice now. I'd say 75% of our clients are not in Chicago, right? We They're all over the place. But when you were starting, how hard was it for you to gain the trust of insert artist here? And when did you finally feel as though you had a, a a group of people that was good enough to sustain a business? That's I, a great can, question. Can I piggyback on that? Because it's yeah. it's kind of what I was just thinking is Brad and I, we all know artists. We all know young musicians who are very talented, and it's always it seems like it's always the lawyer gets involved when it's too late or almost too late, you know, they've already yeah. signed a really bad contract or given away the rights to something valuable or because they have no money usually early on or, or they don't trust people or there's all kinds of reasons with uh, young creatives. So kind of piggyback on that, I guess, with, uh, yeah. with Brad's question. So, the way that I often describe lawyers, I always say lawyers are kind of like dentists. No one wants to go to the dentist. They're not fun to be around, oftentimes painful, not necessarily inexpensive. Kind of sounds like lawyers, right? But I'll tell you what, you go in for a six-month cleaning at the dentist, it's way less expensive and way less painful than a root canal. And in my world, it's the same thing. If you come to a lawyer early on, have them look over the contract and discuss things with you early on, that's way less expensive and way less painful than litigation, which is our equivalent to a root canal. And to me, going to a lawyer when everyone's happy and hungry, happy because nothing bad has happened yet and hungry because nothing good has happened yet, you find that everybody tends to be more humble um, about what their role is and whatever collaboration they've created, right? You wait too long and something big has happened, all of a sudden the drummer, you know, who I pick on drummers a lot, because of my love for them, all of a sudden thinks their role is a lot bigger than it was at the time. When they would have accepted a flat amount of money or a small percentage on something, all of a sudden they think, well, my beat's the most important thing in this. Or a side artist all of a sudden decides they deserve a lot more money. So that's why I think it's important to start early with lawyers. I I will say, my, my career started in litigation, right? I was on the, the dispute side of things. And I switched firms shortly after I met that gentleman who came to my office and said to my new firm where I am now, I want to build a practice in entertainment. I switched firms primarily because my new firm is very big on business development and they understood the importance of encouraging young attorneys to build their practice. That's Swanson, Martin and Bell in Chicago. 
I almost started my own firm. And I had friends at Swanson who said, you should really talk to us first. So I came over there. I joined the intellectual property practice group and commercial litigation group. But then they encouraged me to find ways to build my experience and my relationships. So I read everything I could. I talked to a lot of lawyers that did this work to find you know, backstops and people I could bounce ideas off of. But then I joined a really important organization called Lawyers for the Creative Arts. And Lawyers for the Creative Arts is a nonprofit that provides free legal services to artists who can't afford them. And you ask, how do you get people to trust you? It's a lot easier when you're not asking them to pay you any money and you're mm, helping them for right. free. Mm -hmm. So I, I did this early on. I took on a few matters, both to kind of get my experience, but also to start building a client relationship base. And I owe a lot of my career to that organization because from the first case I had, it was a guy fighting with his uncle over who owned the rights to his mom's music. She had died. She was a songwriter. She was being administered by a major United States music publishing company that I won't name for purposes of today. But, you know, again, I helped this guy out and I was negotiating this deal with the publisher as well as his uncle. His uncle was the mom's brother and they were fighting over who owned the rights to mom's music. And I employed that rule I mentioned earlier, don't be a dick. And it worked really well because by the end of that deal, the uncle's lawyer was not following that same rule. The administrator, the, the publishing company, appreciated the relationship that I had with them. And we became friends after that. And then shortly thereafter, a major recording artist got sued in Chicago, um, along with that publisher and all the writers and other publishers on that song. And they were putting together the defense team. And the publisher said, you know... Jeff was great to work with when he was not our lawyer. We should make him our lawyer for this. So I got mm -hmm. to join that team, and that became a paying client. And this yeah. happened several times, and word of mouth spreads, right? From that case, I've, I've represented some pretty large artists in litigation from Kendrick Lamar, Nicki Minaj, Chance the Rapper, Eminem. Never heard of them. Never. But what happened at that point was there are Keep artists plugging, who have man. not— Keep plugging, man. Keep plugging. Hey, man, listen. I hate, <laughs> I hate mentioning things like that, but I, I mention it only because— um, it's public record, and I can, but more important than that, um, it all happened from the Midwest, right? And I started developing these relationships that fed off of each other. And then there would be artists you've never heard of before who said to me, Jeff, thanks for helping me unscrew what I screwed up. Could you not help me not screw up in the first place? And that began the transactional side. That began, once you get burned, you realize the importance of not getting burned the next time around, Right. Not learning, you've learned the hard way, let's avoid it. And that around, I'd say, four or five years into doing this, and that goes back now probably eight years ago, we really started having this stronger client base where they started referring us more business. And that allowed me to expand our practice group into associates of paralegals and bring in other partners to do this with us. But what's so fascinating about that, tying back to what you originally said as to why you wouldn't become a musician, is what you just described was years of being risky. Mm -hmm. And and you you applied it to being a lawyer, but you wouldn't apply it to being a uh, a musician. And I think that the word that you're looking for is vulnerability. Uh, you, were, you didn't want to be too vulnerable and out there as a musician, and you just could, didn't see it. But you right. were willing to uh, put your head down and work at a, at, a, at a law firm until you figured out exactly where you wanted to be. And, and by the way, it sounds to me like, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you spent years doing copyright infringement, that sounds like, for someone like you, the dullest thing in the world. <laughs> um, 
I'll be honest, no. Copyright infringement really? is actually quite fun. Yeah, it's look, it's anything that involves property of the mind to me is interesting, right? Uh. We're talking about, you know, creative works that have been, you know, developed by an artist or whomever and that somebody else is stealing. I enjoyed that type of litigation um, more than a lot of other types of litigation that are out there. And no offense to my my partners in other areas of law, but you know, we have a big medical malpractice group. We have a big premises liability group, um, tort groups. And that's not the type of work that interests me. I, I was great in biology as a kid, but I don't want to spend all day studying medical records. I'd rather listen to the music and understand how similar these two pieces of work are. I, I teach music law at DePaul Law School up in Chicago, and it's some of my most fascinating conversations with the students are over infringement of copyrights in the music space. It's it's actually quite fun, but mm. that's why that's I'm a lawyer, no, I guess. You know? I, I, I get I it. it. I mean, it's, you know, I tell, and people don't believe me, but we're talking about Bonnaroo, and I tell them it's work for me. It's five days of work. Yeah, look at you. Uh, I used to work harder. I will admit that. Um, but, it, you know, <laughs> after so many years of doing it, but I'd rather be doing that than anything yeah. else. You know, I mean, you get to hang out with cool people like you're talking about and and be around things you're interested in, which is music. That's right. That's that's a huge part of it. So and and when you when you go into work every day, not right now, but when you go to work every day, you have a uh, do you have an entire entertainment team uh, at your firm and uh, how many people you got and how many people are you currently actively representing right now? Well, we do have a practice group of about a half dozen lawyers. We work in film, music, television, literary rights. So we kind of cross the gambit there. We do litigation and transactional work. And it's it's been great. We also have a Do you have any pre- radio guys? Because I know a radio guy may be looking for somebody. We, we actually have a couple of radio celebrities that we've done their deals for, their, their, their negotiations with their, uh, their broadcast uh, teams. Absolutely. How are you um, in 16 months? 16 months, I'll be talking to you, friend. <laughs> I love it. Um, don't wait too long. Got to start those negotiations oh, early. Oh, good, good plan. Um, but yeah, we, we have a whole team at our firm that can handle this stuff. Everyone from the partners on the high end, I oversee, I chair the practice group. I have a partner, Michelle Wall, who's the vice chair of the group. And then we have associates, partners, and paralegals underneath us. And that's just really, the idea here is to provide a team relationship for the client so we can be as cost effective as possible as we continue to, to develop the client, you know, developing clients can't afford legal fees that much, but we, we try to make it as cost effective as we possibly can. Right. And yeah. And I, and I bet you, you have uh, a ton of experience in figuring out uh, intellectual property and yeah. copyright, et cetera. But I don't know if you ever got a class in law school for pandemic. Ooh. Yeah. You know, pandemic law was not something that comes up on the, uh, the syllabus, let's say, <laughs> Um, it will, won't it? And, and I'll tell you what. So I teach music law in the, in the fall every year at DePaul Law School up here. And we go through contracts. Like we dig down, really nerd out on these contracts. And I'll tell you, I don't think we've ever spent a great deal of time on the force majeure provision. It's something that... I'm sorry, the what? Say that again? Exactly. That's what everyone's been saying to me for the last two months. The what now? Uh-huh. It's, it's called force majeure. Um F-O-R-C-E-M-A-U-J-E-R-E, something along those lines, I think pretty close. If you Google it, it'll come up for those listening at home. But force majeure, which is essentially 
describing an event that could not be anticipated and cannot be controlled by either party, right? It's a contract provision that's generally in almost every contract, except it's towards the end, and people stop paying attention by that point in the contract. They're more focused on how much money am I getting paid, right. how long is this thing going on for, and they don't look at something as um, what they consider to be mundane or obscure as force majeure. I've got a friend of mine who's a stand-up comic. Uh, his jo- Pat Dixon. It's one of the funniest jokes in the world. He's like uh, the terms and conditions bo- box at the bottom is sort of like the Bible. I just scroll to the bottom and say I accept. Yeah, uh, that sounds about got, right. You've got a lot of guys like that. So okay, when you and this is essentially why we wanted to talk to you because yeah, uh, this is such an unprecedented um, event for so many people. And what are you advising your guys on? What is the, the, the top few things you're telling them uh, how to make it through, you know, until God knows first quarter of next year? Yeah, yeah. The first thing I say is let me see the contract. Let me see the contract. Um, and that's because this provision that we're talking about, the force majeure con- or provision of a contract, it's not standard. It's not uniform. It varies based on one document to the next. Um, some contract provisions don't have any reference to pandemics. Some do, um, depending on how old they are. Um, what your rights are under the contract vary widely as well. So it, you got to look at the contract first. And just while we're on that part of the advice, I'll dig a little deeper on what this means. Force majeure clauses in a contract allocate risk between the two parties to the contract. They're intended to explain, hey, If something really unexpected happens or something that's completely outside the control of the parties, let's put a provision in here that talks about what happens to us in that situation. Who who would be at risk for this? Are either of us at risk for this? And what are our our rights? And usually that clause comes with it one or two different types of options. One is that the contract could be terminated with no um, consequences to either party financially. And the other is that the contract could potentially be suspended for a period of time while the force majeure event exists. And sometimes those rights can be invoked by either party. Sometimes, depending how it's drafted, it might only be one party's right to do that. So I usually start there by saying, let's look at the document. From there, right now in today's world, I have basically been saying, what's your goal? What is your common sense, reasonable, logical goal here? And let's see if we can reach some sort of reasonable compromise with the other party rather than trying to necessarily stick with the specific strict terms of the agreement. And that goes when my client is on the short end of the stick or on the long end of the stick, right? Because right now you need to find compromise and reason amongst the parties. Okay, if I'm if I'm an artist right now and I've got uh, Bonnaroo, Lollapalooza, I've got a string of festival dates uh, coming up. And they are suspended with the possibility and very good uh, possibility of, of being canceled. Um, how am I protecting myself from um, a major loss of, of income, uh, a major uh, you know, loss of, of, of career options? Um, what, what do I do? What do I do? And do, I, do I wait it out and wait for this to, to all you know, get rescheduled? Well, you know, that's interesting. So this question you posed to me really takes us outside of my role and wearing my head as a lawyer 
into that common sense, don't sit on your ass and do nothing kind of mentality. From a, from a legal standpoint, if the contract says there is a pandemic or really what happens a lot more often right now, currently, a governmental order that prevents an event from happening, oftentimes, depending upon, again, who you are as an artist and who you are as a promoter, the contract may say the promoter has no obligations to you and can take, you can have to pay back the guarantee and they can terminate the agreement or suspend it for some period of time. If you're a slightly larger artist or have an agency that may have negotiated the contract for you, the contract might say that you, the artist, get to keep the guarantee regardless, but they don't, the promoter doesn't owe you any additional money. And that's where a lot of these conversations started. You know, we'd have promoters calling us saying, hey, we have an issue here. We have a bunch of guarantees that we've already paid. We have to get this money back. And then the question becomes, are you really going to ask for that money back? Or is there something else you can do with the artist? Perhaps agree they can keep that money if they agree to perform for you at this rescheduled event, whether it's this fall or next year. Um, that's where we started seeing a lot of compromise between the parties, looking at ways to work with each other so that when this goes away, everybody is feeling like they've worked together. Now, with that said, there's not a whole lot an artist is going to be able to do if the event is canceled. Maybe they're able to keep a few dollars from the contract negotiations. Um, but after that, there's not going to be a lot of live performance going on anymore. And so I, very early on, I actually had written an article we sent to our, a newsletter sent to our clients about force majeure just to kind of give them the overview of what it means. But I ended that article by giving them a few practical recommendations about not sitting on your ass and finding ways to use this time frame to better yourself, right? To take these lemons and turn it into lemonade. Um, before I saw any online concerts, I recommended that you should start really considering putting on some sort of a virtual concert, right? Something that we've been doing now. I, I personally have been doing for the last five weeks. I started doing this thing called Concerts from My Couch, where I've invited a different artist on every week um, in Zoom. You know, I, I would prefer as strong a, a, a audio and video system as I can get. Zoom is okay. It's not the best. But it does allow for interactions like this, where we can see each other and talk to each other. And we've brought together these audiences for the artists where they could donate directly to the artist every huh. week. Money right Damn. in their pockets. And I'm on there like you, interviewing I need to them. hire... I need to hire you as a booker. Uh, you're getting better artists than me. Oh my gosh! Hey, hey Jeff, just you. to for my own, are yeah. In this world, are you mostly representing individual artists? Are you also representing uh, promoters? Are you also representing festivals? Any festivals? And we I run the gambit. We run the gambit. We represent promoters and festivals and artists. Right? So, so in, in this current environment and this is a totally naive question because i have no idea it does it feel like one group or the other right now has an upper hand or does it feel like because of what you've been saying people are trying to figure out how to make it work for everybody you know what i mean because there's a my yeah we had a big debate a month or so ago about refunds and things like that and what it might do from the industry but there's the bottom up side of it too you know so that's uh, so I'm just trying yeah. to get a little. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because you've added a fourth element to that, which is the fans. Right. I mean, 
I believe Ticketmaster and Live Nation have been subject to some pretty big litigation right now, class action litigation about the refund policies. Um, I know that South by Southwest caught some unfortunate press when they said they were not going to refund their tickets as well. Um, and then sponsors are part of this as well. You have sponsors that are putting money into events and wondering what they're going to get out of this now. Again, all of that depends on the contracts from a upper hand kind of position. But I think that from what I'm seeing right now, festivals and promoters are in a really tough spot, in a really tough spot because their entire um, industry, what they're doing, their segment of the industry is all about live performance. It's all about fan engagement, and that's not going to happen anytime soon. You see, I think Pitchfork in Chicago was just canceled yesterday or the day before. Um, Lollapalooza, they're still kind of holding out to decide what they're going to do in August. But that's a really tricky spot, too, because I was recently asked about this. And from a Lollapalooza standpoint, their contract is with the city of Chicago, trying to decide what they're going to do. And their force majeure clauses exist as well. And look at that government order situation. Right now, nothing can happen in Chicago because there's a stay-at-home order, right? But if that order gets lifted, what's next? We don't know what's next. Because if, if the governor here lifts the order but still puts down another order that says no live events with more than 50 people, you can't do Lollapalooza or practically any other venue. So the promoters are still out of luck up here. Let's say it was 500 people. Let's say there's nothing. What what in the world is a festival going to do if there's no longer a government shutdown at all, but you have artists who don't want to perform because right. they're, they're feeling unsafe? Fans that don't want to go and do this <clears throat> and, and be there because they feel unsafe, you're no longer able to use those provisions, yet financially it would be a disaster to do this. And you also don't want to be the only festival putting something on endangering fans and, and, audi- or, and, and artists. That, that's that's going to lead me to something else in a second, but let me just stop for a second. So yeah. when, when a force majeure is there, is there a way that's, that obviously is some sort of tie to insurance. So yeah. if, if something were to happen at Insert Festival here, if they have that clause in some sort of with their insurance company, um, that can't just magically be ripped out from under their feet, can it? Uh, if an insurance company decides we're no longer covering you anymore for insert thing here like pandemic, right. um, would festival promoter artist have some sort of uh, litigation opportunity against the insurance company, or does the insurance company get the the right to just say no, we're not covering this? Well, that's a very that's a very good question, and that is very dependent on the insurance policy that you have with the insurance company, right? So, much like contracts between artists and festivals. You know, these festivals and promoters would have cancellation insurance with their insurance companies. And, you know, for a period of time, um, you know, in certain contracts, depending upon when they were entered into, you may not see any coverage for pandemics or epidemics or quarantines like this. Right. Um, More recently, since you've seen things like SARS and, and other types of pandemics come up, a lot of insurance companies have stopped offering coverage for pandemics. And if you really want one, you need to get a rider that will cover it in a, an amendment or addendum to your policy that will provide you with that coverage. And that could be very expensive. So a lot of festivals you might find don't actually have the insurance they need um, because from a cost management risk benefit analysis, they said, we're not going to do this because let's be honest, we haven't seen a pandemic like this in any of our lifetimes. Um, Is it, it similar going forward? 
Is it similar to a a homeowner's? I'm trying to just make, have it make sense for people. A lot of people don't have flood insurance. I live on a ridge. I don't have flood insurance, but if I get water damage, it doesn't cover it. Right. And that's always a surprise to a lot of people. You know, well, that's you have, exactly right. Yep, that's, that's exactly yeah. right. Okay. So looking at it from a homeowner's perspective, if you live in a floodplain, you might not be able to get flood insurance. Or if you did want it, it would be a very expensive addition to your policy, right? Because it's kind of expected that if you're living on that plane, there's a good chance you're going to get a flood. And that's going to be on you. Um, in this situation, because these types of events have started happening more regularly than perhaps they have over many, many years, insurance companies have said, look, we're not going to cover you in that way unless you pay extra for it. That, that's what it comes down to. Right. But but the city of Chicago, say Lollapalooza, in the future, if they don't already, are going to force you to have that kind of coverage from here on out. Uh, because if you decide to, to your point a second ago, if you decide to be the festival that comes back and uh, you all of a sudden get somebody sick at insert festival here, uh, good luck. Good luck. I mean, you, you're, you're more likely going to get sued for the entire <laughs> festival. I mean, you're, you're pretty much done after that, right? Right. You, you, you very well could be. This is a very detrimental event for so many different um, companies. And it's not just large companies like C3 or Live Nation. It's the small independent venues. You know, we have right. you know, from restaurants to the, the small venues, some of them can't withstand being shut down for what could be over a year or more um, if, if you're focused on live music specifically, right? Um, I don't know. I, I, I haven't really thought hard enough about whether or not um, the city would, would require or compel C3 to have insurance that would cover a pandemic. It, but if they you know, did, it would cost a boatload and almost not be worth Sometimes, right. maybe not a C3 or Lollapalooza, but it's going to shut down a lot of entities. Like, for instance, you go to a, a small venue. We talked to, to Chris Cobb from Exit In. If all of a sudden yeah. artists start demanding that venues start covering for, you know, pandemic coverage, it is going to cost a fortune and nobody's yep. going to be able to afford it. And if you do, your cost of fan experience is going to triple. Yes, that is yeah. absolutely true. 100%. Yeah. One thing I know from talking to people like Chris is the margins are so tight and there's only three or four ways to make money. So they argue, you know, a nickel here and a nickel there. And now you're throwing you're throwing this kind of thing. Um, are you are you seeing artists? Will you do you think you'll see artists start asking for uh, some sort of force majeure coverage from venues so that I they're think- not on the hook of a, of a lawsuit? I don't. I don't know that the artist necessarily would be on the hook for a lawsuit. I think. Well, generally, what about what about when when insert place here catches on fire and everybody starts running for the exits and that band is now on the hook for the lawsuit? Uh, what would that happen five six years ago? Well, it was longer right. than that, but they were they were kind of shooting off uh, some pretty yeah, good heavy, point. Heavy <laughs> so, so here, but let's but put it this py- way. There's pyro at every other music festival. Yeah, not let's, with let's put it this way. Here, I'll, I'll try to simplify this as much as I can. There already are provisions in these artist promoter agreements that talk specifically about force majeure. And I think artists are probably going to start with their agents looking closer at those provisions to talk about how they can be protected or have guaranteed income 
that would come even in the event the force majeure event occurs, right? If they're more concerned that, hey, I'm lining up my next six months of touring and that's all going to go away from a financial standpoint, they're going to probably try to make sure there's some guarantees that they get that money either way. From a liability standpoint, whether it's uh, the, the show doesn't happen because of a, a pandemic or oh, fireworks, <clears throat> usually there'll be language in the contract that says, hey, if you're the moron throwing drumsticks out into the audience, yeah. if you're the one shooting off fireworks, that's going to be in you, artist. But if it's know, our but, fault, it's us. I mean, but I, know, I, I know, but, but I'm the artist that has gathered 250 people here. One of them got sick and then transmitted it to 15 other people that was in the audience. Who who's liable then? Like Ooh. for instance, if Lollapalooza goes on in August, which they're not doing, uh, but if they do, and somebody at Lollapalooza gets sick and then transmits it to something, 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 I mean, insert person here has a lawsuit against C three, against the city of Chicago, against the artists that were there. I mean, it could it would never end. Well, you know that's an interesting question, Brad, and I I think you're going to see that happen soon anyway it won't necessarily just be in the context of of musical events and this is something that my my brethren within the firm in the tort realm and the premises liability realm are going to be playing with a lot i'm sure which is a litigation that comes from this and i think the question there becomes a negligence standard who owes the duty of care to the audience that shows up and have they fallen below the duty of care i think that if you actually try to engage an audience in violation of court orders, which, you know, up here we're seeing happen. There's these churches that are holding sermons on Sundays well in, a, in, in, um, in excess of the limitations the governor's put on these churches, right? I think he said small gatherings of 10 people can gather for religious experiences, and they're bringing in substantially more people than that. There's a good question at that point whether or not you are violating some duty of care owed to your parishioners. And I think that it's going to be very fact-dependent, very fact-dependent on what the circumstances are at that time, what is the CDC said, what are the government saying, and how are you operating. If you're not implementing reasonable standards to protect people, maybe you could be responsible. But I assure you of one thing. If I were representing the artist or the agent involved in this, I'm going to flat out tell the, the promoter or the venue, this is on you to maintain safety for the audience. And unless we do something negligent, specifically, it's on you. And that's generally what's in there already, right? Venues have to provide reasonable security at these events. And they're going to have to have insurance for things like property damage and personal damage, um, unless we, the artist, act in a negligent way. So I don't, I don't know that it will fall on the artists, and I'm sure that there will be new contract language that deals with that. But how it falls out, in a, how it shakes out in a lawsuit in a courtroom we'll have to wait a little while and see because right okay. now the courts are still closed but you as a but you as a lawyer would never as of right now i'm not gonna say never you would not right now start adding language into into contracts that spe specify that you have no liability whatsoever should anything happen at insert thing here well to uh, that and that, that's what i was gonna sort of jump in and maybe I'm reading it wrong and the sure. churches is a good example because that seems like a I, I don't know what the right word is they they seem determined to go against the grain type of thing whereas from my perception of talking to you and talking to Chris Cobb and 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 Brad over these months and the people he's talked to and the people I've talked to 
and again, I don't mean to put words, but it sounds like everyone in the music industry realizes this is an unprecedented, really weird time and that everybody needs each other. That's exactly the right. The, they That's need, exactly right. You got to have a musician. You got to have fans. You got to have a venue. You got to have a promoter. And so it doesn't feel like there's this uh, get back or me against you. It, and if anything, it feels more like people are realizing they need each other even more, which is the whole Chris Cobb, the whole uh, independent venues association that they started. You know, one of the points yeah. he wants to make is we need national level guidelines so that Tennessee is not completely different than California or Illinois or whatever. So yeah, am, but I, I don't, am I reading that wrong? Yeah, but I don't think that you're probably, you know, I don't mean to, to, you know, be a dick, but I don't think that you're being necessarily a good lawyer if you say, hey, it, everybody's going to be okay. I mean, I think that the, the job, correct no, me if no, I'm wrong, no. is, is protecting you against whatever is coming in the future that you can't necessarily uh, see or feel. That's what I, I don't think he, it, I don't read it like everybody's going to be okay, just get over it and trust. I get, <laughs> I read it more like, how do we make this work for everybody? Yeah, uh, let, let's, you, let's be clear here. I'll, I'm going to throw this out there because I hear what both both of you are saying. And first, let me say Barry is correct that the immediate reaction to this, right? We're not talking about drafting new contracts yet, Brad. We're talking about contracts already exist. And we're all like looking up into the sky at the satellite coming towards Earth. Are we all going to point at each other and say that's your job to take care of or we're all going to yeah. work together? You know, and and to me, that's what we're all facing. I, I had a call with with one of the major agencies that um, was representing several artists performing at one of my clients festivals this summer. We hadn't yet decided to cancel. We didn't know quite what we were going to do yet. It was still I was still in the office. Right. We hadn't had stay at home yet. Social distancing. And no one knew what N95 meant. But I called this agent up and asked them, what are, you, what are you guys thinking about this? And how do you interpret this act of God in your persp- uh, opinion in these contracts? And you know, he does a lot of work with his roster at this agency for festivals in the Midwest. And he says, look, you know, we're, right now we're looking at this and saying, what can we do to be reasonable with the artists and with our festivals and everybody else? You know, this is right around the time Coachella was rescheduled to the fall and everybody was agreeing, we'll, we'll keep everything where it is. We're going to move the dates. Certain artists were not going to be able to perform because they had other obligations already set for the fall. They let them out of those contracts. This was no longer about enforcing strictly the agreements, but looking for a way to be reasonable to everybody. Now, to Brad's point, on a going forward basis, yes. We, the lawyers, are likely going to be looking closer at certain provisions in the contract and proposing revisions to those in order to allocate risk in a way that helps our clients. And just like any other contract, whether it's a record label deal, a publishing deal, live performance, you're going to see negotiations that take place and there will be leverage. Bigger artists might be able to get away with things that smaller artists can't. Bigger companies will get away with it too, unlike smaller festivals or startups will. Um, it's going to be a negotiation and a discussion. But you're right, Brad. I wouldn't be doing my job if I wasn't trying to protect my client. But also, I've never been one to over-lawyer a contract to the point that it causes frustration and consternation between the parties. Protect my client, yes, but look for some reasonable middle ground 
that everyone feels good about getting into this deal together rather than finishing the deal and all being angry at each other. Do you have any do you have any artists that are flat out just scared to go back out on the road? Oh yeah. We have artists that are scared to go on the road and we have artists that can't wait to go out and are going out now. Um, yeah. that are trying to plan, you know, different types of events. There's these drive-in performances that are starting up. I don't know if you've heard about those yet. I did. I, I don't know how that's going to work yet, but they want to do drive-in performances. Because Lord knows I've I've Nothing sounds more exciting than having a rave in a Toyota Tercel. <laughs> boy, oh boy, that sounds like a blast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember a few weeks ago, one of my clients saying, I don't know that I'm going to be able to perform for the next year just because, you know, there's this concern. And, and look, they're not alone. The venues very well may not be able to open for the next year because of this concern of a resurgence. You know, it goes down and like the flu season, it comes back again. And you know, until the governments have a better understanding of what they're going to allow these entities to do, artists look at this and say, I don't know how I could step foot into these venues. Um, and, and also saying not only that, like they don't want to, not out of fear, but out of practicality. You know, I think there was some statement by President Trump recently that venues should open up again, but socially distance. And I want to ask you if you've ever thought of an artist wanting to go to a venue yeah. where there's a pit of people on the floor that are all six feet apart from each other. Yeah, that sounds arms. miserable. <laughs> their arms. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, miserable. That right. that that story to... that story about the uh, the venue in Arkansas that's opening. It's a two thousand seat venue. They're letting two hundred people in. Um, it just it doesn't. It, it's not going to feel right. It won't feel right for the artist. It won't feel right for you as a as an audience member. It, none, nothing about that's that. Bad, but how do you make any money? Well, I mean, I was if you're say, counting on 2,000, you need 2,000 to make your margin. You know, what is 200 going to do for you? And, and the venue's not going to make any money. They're going to operate yeah. a lot. How could a venue operate with 200 people coming with the yeah. staff they have to put in there? It's not going to work. Right. Um, it's extremely unfortunate. But that's well, why I, I think you're going to start seeing a lot more creativity um, in trying to find ways to engage besides a pure live experience. It goes back to... I know people are virtual concerted out already, but that's why those events themselves need to need to evolve. I, I don't I personally don't like the Facebook live events or the Instagram live events. No offense to either of them, but they just feel very disconnected yeah. from the fan base. What we're doing is is making it so that everyone's in the room. Like it's a we have a waiting room in Zoom beforehand. I tell the doors are gonna open <laughs> in five minutes. We do the sound check with the artist. And we make it storytellers. And each event, it's not recorded and then put online again. You show up and you see it and you leave like a real live event. And we interview them. We ask them questions so the audience feels like they're getting more of an engaged experience. That's, to me, the creativity I've brought to how, it. I've, how many of these have you done? Who did you? Uh, who have you had? We've had five so far. Um, okay. We're doing our sixth one tonight. So tonight, it's every Thursday at 7 o'clock Central. Um, you know, we have a, a list of people that ask for the Zoom link. Our artists will put it out on their socials and, and provide the Zoom link to people that reach out to them. We don't like just putting the Zoom link out there so anyone can sure. show up. want to make it a little bit more special. Um, tonight, Raquel Castro is going to be on. She is an artist, a songwriter. She actually was on Songland last week um, on NBC. She won. Um, the recording artist, Her, has recorded her song and put it out last week. And so I she'll love be her on so tonight. much. Really it was great, yeah. yeah. She was my Grammy kind of, vote two years ago. Well, she she's yeah. she was fantastic. I saw her there, uh, amazing. And so Raquel was fortunate enough to have her song selected. 
Um, but she'll be on tonight. And again, she's kind of putting yeah. on a half dozen songs and sharing her, her thoughts on the world right now. And it, it's, it's nice. Uh, two weeks ago, we had a, a young band out of L.A. called Beauty School Dropout. Um, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So they're a client, and they were really getting geared up because they were about to head off to South by Southwest with yeah. you know, a whole bunch of shows. And it was, was going to be their moment, too. You know? you know, A lot of these artists are, are missing the, their catch. But here's the beauty of what happened three weeks ago. Um, they were on, you know, on Zoom. It was a, it, they had a, a good visual, good audio, nothing perfect. But they had about, I'd say, 50, 60 accounts signed in, which equates to probably 150 people or so. Every account might have a few people sitting in their living room. And this young girl, at the end of the show, what I started doing was I left the Zoom open so that people could interact with the band, like actually talk to them. It's all, I call it backstage pass, right? I leave it open primarily so that the, our people could donate, so that the Venmo is still on the screen. But I realized what was happening was there would be people on from all over the country, quite honestly, watching these artists. And you know, normally at the end of a show, you go backstage and five or six people can get back there, whoever your manager lets back there. This allows you to talk to your fans, Mm-hmm. Um, and anyone can watch and just see what it's yeah. like to interact. And yeah. this one girl um, unmuted herself, and she was a fan of the band. And she said, hey, guys, thank you so much for doing this. This was a really hard week for me. I just got fired from my job. They shut down the company. I have no job. She was a young girl living on her own. You know, I live in a house with a wife and two kids. I have not been alone or bored for the last month and a half, but this girl's yeah. by herself. And she said to the band, I really needed this. This this actually made my week because I was having a really hard time. And so I started this to give the bands the ability to make a few dollars and interact with their fans. But I realized so much more was happening here yeah. with the people on the other side of it. And the bands that have done this, it forced them to play around with their audio setup and their video and, setup. And now they're doing their own shows. And, and you money. just... And you just struck on something that that is is probably going to be you know the the future of this is is instead of these large swaths of hey how can we move people all at one time, uh, artists are going to have to go door to door to try and connect with human beings. Whereas I could go to a a, a Lollapalooza or a Bonnaroo and immediately be overcome by the Alabama Shakes. Yeah. Uh, if the Alabama Shakes try to do that today, they would need to be going from. Computer yeah. to computer to computer, well, trying to do it one at a time. I mean, we actually had a, a work planning meeting yesterday, um, and this topic came up because we did my father's 90th birthday on Zoom, and it was not the immediate, you know, 20 of us. We had cousins in California and Florida and Indiana and people we hadn't seen in 20 years. Um, you know, relatively, that's a small group. I don't. You, you had 50 on that Zoom, but people are finding out. And they're also, we, as part of our conversation, people are talking a little bit more because they can with mm-hmm. things like this. You know, um, we don't I, know. Nobody can predict how long it will continue. Right. But it's there and it is to your point, Brad. I mean, the door to door is a, a figurative thing. I think Let's acts will find take that out, though. Think about this for a second. You know, door to door, it's interesting because the one thing that I realize about this is that, um, oh, shoot, I don't want to share my screen. Let me stop that. Oh, my God. If you did, the contract, no. we'd see. Yeah, right. Um, there we go. Back to normal. Um, I thought about this, and 
you're yes, smaller groups perhaps. But the beauty of the events that we were doing is the artists did this from their house. I call it concert from my couch because yeah. I sit right here on my couch when I do it, and so does everybody else. I encourage them to get their whiskey. The bar is open at your house. Go do it. But the artist is at home too, and that means the artist could put on, let's say, 20 of these concerts for 50 or 60 accounts at a time and not spend a single dollar on travel, a single dollar on hotels. And you can cap out, if you're a slightly larger artist, cap out how many people can come. Yeah. Put on unique shows for different markets. There's the word. There's the word yeah. I was I was going to use. That uh, when I interviewed Drew Holcomb when they brought Moon uh, the Moon River Festival to Chattanooga, we start we were talking about the curated festivals, the yeah. smaller ten to eight to ten thousands, and that was the word. People that went wanted to feel like they had gotten a unique experience, yeah. which is exactly what you're talking about. I got to hang. I mean, Brad even said. <laughs> His, his new BFF, Ed O'Brien, was in his living room three or four weeks ago. That's, you yeah. know, that's the thing. You, that's a unique, who else gets that, right? Um, that's right. That's what it, it's going to come down to. It, artists should probably start thinking about what their Wi-Fi setup is, their video and audio abilities are. I mean, I've seen artists connect right in through Ableton and Logic, and some artists just play a guitar or piano and directly into their normal microphone. I think our audiences also are a little more forgiving right now. Yeah, than they right have now. Been. Yeah, that right ain't right last. now. <laughs> yeah. But but I but I do think that, you know, over the next month or two, you're gonna start seeing other platforms, whether it's Facebook coming out with something else mm-hmm. or um, just somebody Zoom fixing what they what they have going on or some other company that sets this up in a way that really does a great live show. One of our clients was on Red Bull Records did a festival, I think, last weekend. And it was really cool how they brought everybody together, but a lot of that's pre recorded, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't do it truly live, live mm-hmm. um, and, and have the live experience and have the quality also. And mm-hmm. if someone could figure out a way to keep the quality up, allow for this engagement, because you can't really do that very well on some of these you know, social media platforms, that can be a really big help to audiences. Yeah. And, I know and, exactly what you're, you're exactly right. About. When Facebook Live started, uh, Jeff, I, I thought it was a fascinating thing three years ago. And if you could see my office, you probably can how cluttered it is. But I see it. No. That's what I've been doing Come on. is collecting. All of this is just what he's talking about. It's no. all stuff I've got. Yeah, I don't is. see any clutter. Yeah, oh, that. But if you, <laughs> I think too up there, Jeff. That's the thing to tell people. That's yeah. the secret. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, it is. Well, uh, man, I can't. I can't thank you enough. It, it's such a fascinating conversation, and and uh, you you tell the story so simply and so well. Uh, just as a piece of curiosity, you ever been to Bonnaroo? Or you just I am not. I was I was planning on going to Bonnaroo this year. Stop it! No <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not even kidding. Yeah, oh. this was going to be my first experience, man. I, I'm kind of bummed about it. I look. The one thing I'll say is, as a lawyer, I I get jealous of my agent friends quite a bit because they they head down there, and my radio friends too. I, my good friend Norm Weiner goes down know, all Norm. the time. Norm's a, he's, a good he's friend a, he's and a in, client. He's in our guys' group in Chicago. Yeah, we've got a guys' yes, he is. Yeah. yes, he is, and he's. One of my favorite people and is always talking about going to this festival or going out to Colorado for that radio thing you guys do. And and I keep saying, but I got to be in the office and look at contracts. It's hard for me to just jump from Lala to Bonnaroo to, to Coachella because, you know, I'm I'm unfortunately somewhat the nerdy one making sure nothing happens in the background. But I was looking forward to making my first excursion down this year. And well, sure the, enough, it'll the be dirty next little season. secret that Norm won't tell you that I will is that we don't really have that much to do. 
Uh, <laughs> we've got a lot of free time. Um, but you know, who are you? Uh, who are you excited to see if you're going to come down to Bonnaroo? Who are you going to see? Who is your uh, top three? Um, you know, I, I honestly I haven't even had a chance to look at any. You're just going to go these festivals. I was just going down for the experience, and as soon as all these things started kind of canceling, I'll be honest. Yeah. When I go to South by or or even Lala, even in Chicago, I might see some of the big headliners jumping up there first. Um, but I don't even sit down and highlight my roster and probably until a day or two beforehand because mm-hmm. I haven't had a chance to study it. Yeah. And and personally, not- my, my favorite artists are usually in the middle to bottom of the bill. Right. It's these artists I start caring about coming up that I want to see the headliners. I've probably seen somewhere before and they're fun. Yeah. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie to you, Barry. And I've said it before, but I'll just keep saying it over and over. You just don't understand Lollapalooza. It's unlike anything that you've been to. Now, as a fan, it's it's different. But for us, it is a swamp. Um, once you once you get circling in in the thing, you don't get out. And I can't tell you. I maybe have seen on two hands Lollapalooza shows in how many wow. years? Six years. I've seen 10 shows at Lollapalooza. Uh, wow, it's, you yeah. get stuck back there and you just don't get, it gets your hook. They get their hooks in you and you don't get out. It's, it's very it's frustrating. The truth. It's the truth. It's, it's a, it's a fun time. It's a fun time. It is great. I think it is great. I will say this, you know, um, you know, I saw Liz, Lizzo this year mm-hmm. performing at the Grammys. That was that and South by right before that. I'd love to see an entire set of hers on a big stage. And I'll tell you what else. Um, somehow, you know, staying at home, my kids are discovering more music on their own. And my son has just started playing Tame Impala on a loop, um, which is kind of fun. You know, it's the one song and I've exposed him to some more stuff. So, I mean, bigger artists, I, I think those would be fun to watch. A lot yeah. of fun to watch. Um, but like I said, I love that middle to bottom of the bill. The yeah, artists who are too. starting to come up. It's a discovery yeah, thing, too. right? Yeah. 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 Sure. Well, that's that's where this that's where this uh, whole show started. Uh, man, with it, by, uh, hey, dogs. Uh, by the way, thank you so much for uh, doing the, the. How much did this hour cost us? Uh, what are you uh, charged by really the hour? It's a question of what this hour cost me. Um, you guys got this pro bono, my friends. Um, you know, look, look. Oh, God. The, the, the only plug I'll make for us is this. You know, having built this practice in the Midwest and having worked with a lot of developing artists as they come up, um, you know, I try to provide a way to make sure that my my artists are able to afford legal services and so we'll work with them we do hourly flat fees percentages it just it's a matter of what makes sense for us and what makes sense for them um so and we've got a great team to make it cost effective so if you're listening and you just have a question or two give me a buzz otherwise you know we can always work something out yeah you're the best man i appreciate it and, and thanks so much yeah this was so much fun gentlemen you're so welcome so, so thanks thoughtful. for having me on yeah we'll Absolutely. see you soon I hope so. I hope I actually see you yeah. in person sometime soon. I'll try to remember it next time. <laughs> Take care, gentlemen. See you, buddy. See you, Bye. Jeff. Bye. 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 All right, there you go. Uh, Jeff Becker, uh, entertainment lawyer for the um, – he's our lawyer now. Uh, I think that we officially <laughs> hired him. I sent him $1 on Venmo. And he's, now yeah, he's we, committed. He's officially, like he's officially our lawyer. What did you think, uh, what is your takeaway about the idea of the attitude of people right now? I mean, it it feels like doom and gloom because we're in the middle of this thing. But as I mentioned during the talk with Jeff, it still feels to me, the positive that I'm getting is that it feels like most of the groups anyway realize they're all in this together and 
you know, the independent guy who's playing to 50 people is important just as the 50,000 person act is in the grand scheme of things. And the small venue is just not as just, but is important yeah. too. Do you, I mean, well, do you feel like that or is it just, me I have no, I have no fa uh, financial um, implications in all of this. So I just have an opinion. Uh, my, the, the way that I've gone forward is I'm uh, pessimistic. Uh, but if something comes around and surprises me, I'm going to be really, really excited. Um, that's just, Natural disposition, to be honest with you, and uh, I just, I'm I'm trying my best to hold out hope, and I'm trying my best to stay um, to po to stay positive. It ain't working uh, for me. Uh, In what way, though? So You're so if I so if I'm relatively so if I get surprised by something, excellent. I can't wait. But I'm I'm operating in a pretty pessimistic space right now. In in what way, though? As far as like how soon this will open or yeah. the future future. Cause I'm, I'm asking more about the future than I agree with you. Nothing Both. is going to happen till late. Both. Fall, if any. Both because I, I don't know. Oh boy. How can I say this? Like, so the idea that I'm going to ever walk into uh, the tabernacle in Atlanta and be surrounded by 500 people. Uh, maybe it's because of where we are right now. It seems so unbelievably hard to imagine and i don't know when that that light bulb just turns back on and i don't know when that that ability just and i don't know if it ever will it i i'm 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 trying not to be worried and i'm trying not to overthink it but there's just something in me that that feels like the idea of eighty thousand people in a field those days don't seem like it's and even if it, even if you believe all of the the stuff about coronavirus not being as bad as the flu or uh, it is it is so screwed the psyche of of humanity uh, not just in this country but across the world that I I don't know how large swaths of people don't forever have their mind screwed on this. And at the end of the day, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week, the shows that are going to do really well in the short term, Kid Rock and Toby Keith, because they got a group of people who don't give a damn, who no. think all of this is nonsense and they're going to show up and give their shit to everybody. They don't care. Um, those are the people that are going to do really well. And as far as like the, the really thoughtful and interesting ones that I, I, I don't know, I just, no, I, I get what you're saying, and, and I'll tell you what illustrates that for me. <laughs> and I noticed this about a week ago. Not only are people wearing masks inside their own cars, they're staying well away from the car in front of them. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Their, their car is, is social distancing yeah, as well. They're, they're driving with social distance. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's the weirdest it, thing. It is a very strange it's, it's thing. What you're, it's your point. It's inside of our psyche now. And yeah. I don't disagree with that at all. Like, for instance, you're probably not going to change the minds of, of hard... Let's just use Bonnaroo, for example. You're not going to change the minds of hardcore, hardcore Bonnarooians. They're going to show up anyway. But the fringes, the ones that, that, that uh, people like Bonnaroo make their money on, the 20K that show up just because of the lineup or just because you know it worked out, I don't know. I I just I don't see them showing back up to these things for a very very long time. And here's here's where I the the crux of my thought process of this is that 
when we move on from COVID, there's going to be another one. There's, well, or there's going to be something else that screws up the next thing. And I hate to be one of these guys that's like uh, the dominoes falling and never again are we ever doing. But, but I've gone too long in my life to realize that um, if, if, you give, if you give space for something bad to happen, it's probably going to Well, uh, So you know, once we, coronavirus is done, what's next? We joked about it, but the more I've thought about it, it's not funny. Uh, you, you know, you said a couple weeks ago the idea of being in a field on, on a Friday night or a Saturday night with 80,000 sweaty people is one thing. But seriously, the idea of porta potties and those uh, FEMA showers, that's that's changes it a yeah. lot. You know, I know. I know. It, it's it, it, I'm not a germaphobe, but, you know, we think about that when we're there before. Yeah. Now it, it's uh, I don't know. I'm not ready to think about it too, too deeply. I'm not either when it happens. I'm not either. And I think that we all, I think that the optimistic part of us just loves the idea of doing something and that's fine. And we don't want that ripped away from us. And we don't want the opportunity to even feel that to be ripped away. Because if you tell me reality, then all of a sudden I can't even engage my mind to think about the idea. I get that. Right. But all I know is, uh, the second, the second that this is all over and we move on or, or we get something back that's good, uh, something else is going to come around. You know, it just <laughs> the next one is just going to be just as that. bad. I don't need I know, but, but then, but even if it's not as bad, the psyche, it's so screwed with our psyche that the next thing that we think is going to be the world ender and we're going to be in quarantine in a, in a week and a half, not a month and a half. It's, uh I don't even think about it. <laughs> no, I don't either. I I think you need a I just, hug. <laughs> I just want to I just want to go outside and eat crawfish with people. I'll be honest with you. you all, go, I just want to go to go get on the floor with the dogs and just get a big hug with the dogs. All right, there you all go. Right. Hey, Jeff Becker was amazing. Yeah, was uh, check him out. Do do all the uh, my favorite radio show in the world, uh, the Bennington Show. My radio hero, Ron Bennington. Uh, always calls the people that reach out to his guests and uh, applaud them and say thank you to them, the first responders. Boy, if we have a group of first responders that could uh, reach out to Jeff Becker and say thank you for your time, uh, that would be much appreciated because uh, it's expensive. It's very, very expensive. <laughs> I didn't think about that till you said it. Man, yeah, he 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 gave up. He just lost the car payment, yeah. didn't he? By the way, this was this ain't, I know you may be listening to it at a different time, but this ain't the weekend. Uh, this is midday in the middle. He just uh, gave us a lot of time. Thanks so much for you for listening and for uh, being a Patreon. Um, no Patreon reads this week because uh, Lord Taco's not here. So uh, we'll devil up next time on the What Podcast. Uh, uh, see you then. Love you. Bye. Hey, 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 hey. Journey through the stories that define the artists playing Bonnaroo. Who are they? What are they? What will you see? The what? Which bands this year that matter with Brad Steiner and Barry Corner. Saving money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.